Good morning. It's good to see all of you today, all of our visitors. Welcome. Uh, last week, I, as I teased ahead to this sermon, I mentioned that uh, Nahum was one of my favorite minor prophets. Kip and Dave are already smiling, and so is Dale, because I think they know where I'm going with this, because apparently I say that every week about the minor prophets, and, well, I have yet to find one that isn't my favorite, or one of my favorites, I should say. But I really do love the book of Nahum, because I find that, um, especially uh, last August, uh, when we went down to polishing the pulpit, I attended a session about the archaeology of the minor prophets, and there was a section within this that I found extremely fascinating, and it was about the book of Nahum uh, and the archaeology that has proven many of the, the prophecies that were brought forth by Nahum. Uh, but before we get into the book of Nahum, I kind of want to build our thoughts a little bit and prepare our minds uh, for this teaching and the, and the profitable teaching that we find from the book of Nahum. Something that I continue to hear over and over, and we talked about it a little bit in our class this morning, um, and it comes from those who, who claim to be Christians and, and those who are not Christians. And it's this, it's that God just wants us to be happy. Right? God just wants us to be happy. The saying in marriage, of course, is happy wife, happy life. And while that is an accurate sentiment, for those who are newly married, that is true, be, live by that, uh, The same just doesn't apply really to our relationship with God. Happy human, happy God. That's not how it works. In fact, it's kind of the other way. It should be happy God, happy human. But I think sometimes our theology makes us believe that happy human means happy God. Now this argument is used by many basically to excuse sin and wickedness. For example, a church who openly accepts and even promotes homosexuality and gay marriage, including having openly gay leaders, they use this excuse to excuse the sin that they're knowingly living in. God just wants us to be happy. God is love and wants us to love how we want to love. Church, this is what is called bad theology. On the opposite end of the theological spectrum that we also talked about a little bit in class this morning is this this concept that God is like a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. And we're the ants. He's just a judge who's sitting on a bench with his his two-inch law book waiting to smack us with it as soon as we mess up or or trip over a technicality. That as soon as we do that, that he's going to swing down the gavel and smash us into hell. There are some who believe that this is who God is. But again, church, this is bad theology. Bad theology is refuted in the Word of God. Good theology is developed from knowledge obtained within God's Word. We must test our theology against the Word of God to know whether or not we have good or bad theology. Now, how many of us here are theologians? It's okay to raise your hand if you are. All right. I was afraid that was going to happen. Theologians are individuals who have contemplated and established in their minds an understanding or belief of who God is. So I'll ask again, how many of you here are theologians? Thank you. Much more hands I should see. That's good. Because we are all theologians. We all have an understanding of God. We all have a belief, at least in our minds, of what or who we believe God is. And I would go so far to say, as I did this morning in class, that atheists are also theologians. 
because they have formulated in their mind a belief that God does not exist. That is a belief about God. But there are bad theologies, and there are good theologies. Now, we all have this established belief of who God is. We may, have, we may not have ever written it down somewhere, but we all have a basic individual understanding of who God is, at least to us. But what is our understanding and belief of who God is? Do we believe that God just wants us to be happy? That we can do, that we can say or be or feel or think however we want so long as it makes us happy and He's okay with that? Or do we believe that He's a bullying lawyer or judge just waiting for us to stumble so He can sweep us off to hell? Or are we somewhere in between? It's important that we turn to the Word of God to gain the proper understanding and belief of who God is, what His expectations are for us, etc. For if we have a bad or a wrong theology, it could lead us to where we don't want to go on the day of judgment. Judgment is coming. If you haven't learned anything thus far in this sermon series, I hope you have learned that judgment is coming. I want you to think back on that. I want you to think about your theology. I want you to think about how you view God as we get into the book of Nahum this morning. Nahum is three chapters long. So if you didn't have a chance to read it this week, go home and read it. It takes like 10 minutes. If you're going out to eat after church today, pull out your your digital Bible that also makes phone calls and read it while you're waiting for the, the, the waiter to bring your water. It doesn't take long at all. There are three chapters in the book of Nahum. And they all correspond really with their own section. Now, Nahum means consolation. And I think that's a beautiful thing because really that is what the book is all about. Uh, Nahum prophesied uh, during the same time as as Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and uh, Habakkuk did. This uh, his message is dated somewhere between 630 and 612 B.C. And the latter date of 612 B.C. is is important, as we'll see here in a little bit. But the name, the name Nahum being consolation, it's, I find it to be no coincidence. It's pretty symbolic of the message of the book of Nahum, which is intended to be a comfort or a consolation to those in Judah. Those who are being oppressed by the, the Assyrians. So during this time that, that uh, Nahum is, is prophesying, Assyria is in power. Uh, they have already wreaked havoc, really, over the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, they, they, they are now in Assyrian captivity. Assyria, at this point, is still very much a world power. They are still very much uh, the, 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 the big kahuna in the region. But they are fading because there's somebody from the east who's rising, and that is Babylon. Babylon is moving in um, and eventually will overthrow Assyria. So what's so important about Assyria? Well, first of all, they are Israel's worst enemy. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Nineveh is, was kind of our focus of Jonah. Right? Jonah went to Nineveh to bring forth the word of God so that Nineveh would repent of their evil ways and turn to God so that he would relent from the destruction and doom that was coming upon them, which, of course, happened. They did this thing. God forgave them, and he showed mercy toward them and relented of them of the coming disaster. Now, fast forward a hundred years, and we're now in the book of Nahum. A hundred years after Jonah, we are now in Nineveh once again, but this time... 
God is sending a message to them that's basically, I've had it with you. And so Nahum documents the fall of Nineveh. Nahum's book, as I said before, is broken up into three sections, three chapters, ironically enough, not ironic at all, it's, it's pretty perfectly written. Um, but chapter one covers the declaration of Nineveh's doom. The second chapter uh, is a description of the doom that will be facing them very soon. And finally, we see why Nineveh deserves the doom that is coming in chapter three. And go ahead and turn over to chapter three, if you will. Uh, if you're following along in the, the Bible app, of course, you, you're probably already there. So give those of us a second to get there in the paper Bibles. I typically have it marked, but I had it marked for Bible class this morning. Nahum chapter 3. So I want to set the tone a bit. All right, I want to I kind of give you an idea of who these people are in Nineveh. Now, when Jonah went to Nineveh, we kind of got an understanding of who these Ninevites were, but we really only got it from Jonah's point of view. And Jonah seemed a little skewed, but he really wasn't. Nineveh is a terrible place. It's, we're not talking about vegetables slapping each other with fish. It's a lot worse than that. It's a lot worse than what the VeggieTales uh, paint a picture of. But in chapter 3, we see just what kind of people those in Nineveh are, who the Assyrians really were. In sharing these things, it's easy to see and understand why Jonah didn't want to go to them. It's easy to understand it's not necessarily right, but it's easier to understand why Jonah desired for this people to be destroyed. Verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and, and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. You... You have built your city on the bodies and the blood of those who you have maliciously murdered and destroyed. And God's basically saying, I'm done dealing with your wickedness. I'm done dealing with your murdering ways, with your idolatry, with your prostitution. I'm done dealing with you, period. I am done. Jump, over, uh, jump down to, to verse 19 there of chapter 3. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. In other words, what's done is done, right? The wound is fatal. Nothing can be done to save you this time. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. When I, when I hear this, I see, I see a crowd of, uh, of, of kids standing over a bully who had been bullying them for years. And, and someone finally stood up to the bully and knocked him down and everybody's just clapping. You got what you deserved. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Assyria's evil had impacted so many that the number of those rejoicing over their fall would be numerous. And it's an especially consoling sentiment for the, for the people of Judah, one of many who have been impacted by Assyria's unceasing evil to whom this message was originally intended. And this is good news, Right? And I know this book is about a horrible people and God's wrath and judgment coming upon them. So how in the world could this be good news? Here's the good news, church. God destroys evil. When a judge delivers justice, people rejoice. That's the right thing to do. It's, it's what we looked at last week in Micah. 
that God is a God of justice and desires for His people to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with God. Justice is a good thing. Think about it. What if we lived in a world in which the strong bullied the weak over and over and over and continuously got away with it? No one stopped them. They just got to do it. There's no punishment. There's no justice. How terrible would that be? Especially as God's people, when we're told to love our enemies, that that even if our enemies are hungry, that we're supposed to feed them. If they're thirsty, we're supposed to give them something to drink. In a world without judgment, and the enemy continues to prosper, and and, and God never brings down the mighty gavel and crushes them, He stops them and brings justice. And if God didn't do that, how could we love our enemies? It would be very difficult to love our enemies if God was not a just God. And what I love about the book of Nahum is that God did as he said he would to Nineveh. This is where the history and archaeology come together to give us an amazing picture that God's prophets speak the truth. I have, ne- I have never needed solid proof, really, that the Bible is exactly what it is. It is the Word of God. It is breathed out by God and is good for teaching. But I love when, they, when these archaeological findings come to light because it makes it so much harder for those who criticize the Bible and try to discount, discount the truth that is held within It makes it so much harder for them. Listen to this in chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to rapid fire some verses off here in a little bit. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Chapter 2, verse 6. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. The Babylonian Chronicle, it's not a newspaper, but it's a series of tablets that documents Babylonian history and and their conquests. And it details a great flood of the rivers flowing through and around Nineveh, namely the Tigris River. And what the flooding of that river did was it broke down their walls because the river flowed through Nineveh. And so when the rivers rose up, it broke down those tunnels that the waters flowed through and it allowed the troops then easy access into the city. But it doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, Nahum details this. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. They need to draw water because of the fire, right? Strengthen your forts. Go into the, go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the, uh, like the grasshopper. Archaeologists have uncovered ruins from the ancient city of Nineveh that shows extreme charring, indicative of a great blaze that destroyed many parts of the city during the Babylonian siege. But wait, there's more. Nahum declares this in chapter 2, verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts, and, uh, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish in all the loins, all faces grow pale. Desolate, means a place that is deserted of people and in a state of bleak and dismal emptiness. So I want to take you on a quick journey. There's us, the blue dot, 
right? So I'm going to take us to modern day Nineveh. And first, we need to go to the Middle East because that's where Nineveh is, right? So we have Israel over here on the left-hand side. And of course, we have Jordan. We have uh, Lebanon and Syria, not Assyria, but just Syria. And then we have Iraq. A lot of us know about Iraq. There's been a war that's been raging there and a, a war that continues to go on today and a war that is headquartered out of one specific city in Iraq and that city is Mosul. That is where ISIS is headed up. That's where their headquarters is. Mosul is a, is a constant firefight, a constant battle between ISIS and those battling ISIS, good and bad, if you will. But Mosul, located right here, holds for us something else. Mosul is Nineveh. That is where the ancient city of Nineveh was and still is today. If I zoom in right here on Nineveh or on Mosul, the, the heart of Mosul, do you see that right there? That is Nineveh. It still is desolate. It is still in ruins. No one lives there. No one farms there. No one, no one goes there except archaeologists to learn about the history. You can see the ancient walls still. And in fact, the, the Nurgle Gate right here is actually a Babylonian gate that was erected after they, they overthrew the city because they had to build up their defenses again, right? This was, a good, this was a good place. It sat on the Tigris River. It had access to the trading port. So it was, a, it was a good strategic location. But Nineveh still lies in ruins. In fact, Google and and. Uh, Mosul referred to this place as the ruins of Nineveh. That is good news, folks, because God destroys the evil. And today, it is no coincidence, I don't think, that ISIS, those who are persecuting Christians, those who are killing and murdering and doing exactly what the Assyrians were doing, building their city, building their reputation on the bodies and the blood of the innocent... They are now surrounded. They are now surrounded in Nineveh. Now, I don't know about you, but I I believe that God isn't done bringing down justice on evil nations, on the nations and the regime, and regimes that are wicked and evil, and, and as their evil and wickedness continues to increase, look throughout history. As nations and empires and regimes, etc., grew more and more wicked, the bodies continuing to pile up, those regimes fell, and they fell hard. Justice was served, and that's good news, right? Because knowing that God will judge the wicked, understanding that, we can find it easier to love our enemies, to feed them when they're hungry, and to give them something to drink when they thirst, because it's not our job to judge them. It's not our job to take them out, to take care of them, if you will. It's God's job, and God will handle the wicked. Now, let's look back at chapter 1. The verses that we heard in our scripture reading this morning paint an important picture about God, something that, we, that should help in our discussion on our theology. Now, Nahum, much like the, the previous prophets that we have studied thus far, uh, he goes back and forth between describing the judgment of God and His mercy. And we saw this last week. A God who does justice but loves mercy. This is the foundation of the gospel church. We need to understand this because we don't get Christianity without understanding this. 
Those two theologies that we talked about this morning at the beginning, a God who is a, a judge waiting, to, waiting for us to mess up so that he can smack us with his wrath, or the other side of God who just wants us to be happy, and that's enough. With those theologies, Christianity makes no sense. The cross doesn't make sense. When we understand God, the God that Scripture tells us about, the cross makes sense. The gospel message makes sense. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Now, does this fit the theology that God just wants us to be happy? Does this fit the false teaching that no matter what you do, as long as you're happy, God's happy? That if someone makes you mad, that you can just go punch them in the face because that makes you happy, that makes you feel good. And so if I feel good, that must be something that's coming from God, right? Or if you don't find your spouse attractive anymore or you fight too much, the world says, hey, just go find a new one. Let's go find a new spouse. As long as you're happy, God's happy. Or hey, you've had a rough day at work, so go out, have a good time, get drunk, wash your cares away with alcohol. God just wants you to be happy. Is that the God that Nahum describes? I don't think anyone can truly read Scripture and honestly come to a conclusion that you can do whatever that makes you happy and God will be happy with you. Because God is a jealous and avenging God. If you read my bulletin note uh, last week, I talked about how jealous God is. And when you give your affections to something else, He desires your affection. But when you give that affection to something else, when you place things on a higher pedestal than God, you put your affections on an idol. That makes God jealous. And we've seen what He does to idolaters. But verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He's not quick-tempered. He's not the God that sits on the throne with His magnifying glass waiting for us to assemble so He can fry us. I mean, look at Nineveh. We have an example of God being slow to anger right here in Nineveh. God sent His prophet Jonah, and He sent His prophet Nahum. He sent Jonah and said, Hey, Nineveh, repent. You are messing up. You are terrible people. You need to change this. And so He sends Jonah to take care of that. And what do they do? They listen. Right? They hear the word of God and they obey. But then, a hundred years later, his slowness is over and his anger is coming. Nahum adds, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning he is just. He is a good judge who seeks justice. If a person who is guilty of a crime stands before a judge, a judge who knows he's guilty, and the judge says, you know what, it's okay. Just go on. You're fine. Learn from your mistakes. Hopefully we don't see you again. That's not a good judge, is it? Justice isn't being served. But God doesn't do that because he's a good judge. The guilty must be punished Justice must be served. But at the same time, God is also slow to anger. What Nahum is detailing here, and this is really what we see throughout the whole uh, Old Testament, even from the beginning. Look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. 
God is speaking here, describing Himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Let's stop there for a second, actually. This is key. This is key to understanding this aspect of God. This isn't talking about if you're happy, God's happy. This is saying that He's not a God waiting to cast down His lightning bolts on you as soon as you slip up. He's slow to anger, gracious and merciful. But being slow to anger means that if things continue the way they are, the anger will come. It just may take a while for it to get there. Like with Nineveh, it took a hundred years. The key is that God doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want that. He desires desires that all would seek life, that all would seek Him and and call on the name of the Lord to, to repent He doesn't want to catch anyone in a technicality. He's not a big kid on an anthill. We're not just ants that he's waiting to zap with his giant magnifying glass. This, that isn't biblical theology. The Lord is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is steadfast in His love. He is merciful and gracious, but He is just. The guilty don't get a free pass. God is both a just God and a loving God. And some may say that love is what brings about the justice. As a father, punishment is not easy, but it comes from love, right? We want our children to succeed. We want our children to make good choices, not bad ones. And they need to learn that there are consequences for their actions. So how can God be both a merciful and gracious God, desiring for repentance, desiring that no one should perish, but also be a God that says, I cannot clear the guilty? How can that be? How can He be both? Listen to this from 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. I hope it starts coming together now. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And He devises means, here's the key, He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. The banished one, the guilty God, throughout time, throughout Scripture, has set up systems so that those who are guilty could be reconciled. These systems are ones of atonement. The word atonement means covered over. And that's important. Store that, store that away. Make a note. If you're taking notes, atonement means covered over. So the law says to not eat the blood of an animal. Why? Because the blood is the life source of the animal. When one offers up a sacrifice of atonement, that blood is the life of the animal. So on the Day of Atonement, there are two animals, typically. There's a goat who people would place their sins on this goat and it would run out of the camp. That's called a scapegoat, right? That's where that term comes from. And then the second animal, the second animal is typically a lamb. This is the animal that will be the atoning sacrifice. It's pure and spotless. It's gorgeous. It's the perfect one, right? No sins on this lamb, no blemishes. 
and the blood, the life source of this lamb, was to be offered up to cover the life of the guilty people so that the guilty would be guilty no more. One life, a life of a perfect lamb for the life of Israel, because God is both, right? He is both merciful, he is gracious, but and slow to anger, but he will not clear the guilty. So the guilty must be covered by atoning blood. If there's going to be forgiveness, the atoning blood, the sacrifice, is necessary. This is how it has always been, church. He doesn't desire Remember, he doesn't desire for anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance, so he sets up ways that the guilty could become innocent. Go all the way back to the beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve were filled with shame when they realized they were naked. They found shame in their nakedness, and so God provided them a way to cover up their shame. By what? The skins of animals. He devised ways so that the banished ones would not remain outcasts. Listen to this. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God wants to forgive people. He desires to reconcile with His creation. He doesn't want people to have sin in their life, but it's not something that He does on His own. Listen to something similar in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Nehemiah prayed in chapter 9, verse 17, uh, about halfway down here. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. David in Psalm chapter 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is not coercion, people. These are not men who all got together and said, hey, we should include this part in all of our books. It's because it's the truth. Joel pleaded this in chapter 2, verse 13. We covered this several weeks ago. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And of course, from a couple weeks ago, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, as Jonah addresses God after he relents on the disaster over Nineveh, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and willing to relent from disaster. God will punish the guilty, but he wants to forgive them. Folks, if that's not good news, I don't know what is. God loves us so much that He's willing to hold back His wrath. He's willing to hold back His anger and give us the time to repent and be forgiven. To be covered by an atoning sacrifice. Our theology, our our understanding of God is held right here in Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. It's repeated time and time again throughout the Old Testament. And the Lord hasn't changed, church. The access to forgiveness, the repentance, the atoning sacrifice, that has changed. But God has not changed. For God is slow to anger. God is great in power. And God will by no means clear the guilty. That church is the gospel message. The gospel wants us to fall in love with God. After all, He loved us first. He loved us enough to send His one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
That's the atoning sacrifice. That's our reconciliation, His Son. But it's, it's hard to fall in love with a God who just lets everyone do what they want, and there's no consequences for bad choices. That's not a good father. That's not a good God. And it's even harder to love a God who's waiting for us to trip up on a technicality so that He can strike us down. If we get so legalistic in our theology, our Christian life becomes a burden. I have to do this, but I really don't want to. It's that checkbox mentality. That sort of thinking, instead of desiring to do the things that God wants you to do, the things that He commands you to do, because we love Him for who He is. We love to serve Him. We long to do His will because God is slow to anger, because He is great in power, and He will by no means clear the guilty. Turn over to Romans chapter 3, and let's apply this teaching. Verse uh, 21 through uh, 23 here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul lays out in the first three chapters of Romans. The Gentile has fallen short. God has rules. He says, this is how you ought to live. The Jew and the Gentile together. We've all fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, church. And Paul says, if it's according to the law, then we have no hope as Gentiles. But we are justified. Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus So the gospel is here, and Jesus says now everyone can be forgiven. The opportunity is available. It's not just, woo, you all have it. It is available. A choice needs to be made. But what about the aspect of God that says by no means will he clear the guilty? Where's the justice? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation By His blood, the propitiation that is the atoning sacrifice that covers our sin to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. He held back His wrath. He held back His judgment. And in verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus How is God just and become the justifier to show his righteousness? How how is this possible? How how, how is he just if we're not being punished for our iniquities? Because he punished Jesus instead. Jesus takes on the punishment that mankind deserves. Jesus took on the punishment, the torture, and the pain of being hung on a cross that we deserve. We don't deserve to be happy. We deserve death. But because of Christ, we have hope. God can be just because of Jesus' punishment. And He becomes the justifier so that we can be made right in His sight. Christ's blood is what washes away those sins. It's the atoning blood that covers up, right? That makes us free men. 
It makes us no longer guilty. But does it make us free enough to just do whatever we want, to just go on and live however we want to live? No. Paul, said, Paul details this in Romans chapter, chapter 6. He says, should we go on sinning because we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace? By no means. When we became Christians, we died to sin. That's what repentance means. We should love the Father so much that we want to obey Him because the Lord is slow to anger. He is great in power and He will by no means clear the guilty. Jesus took our guilt upon Himself. He brings the Old Testament and the New Testament together and makes it all, it makes it all make sense. He took our guilt upon Himself and became a stronghold for all who would take refuge in Him. And that's what Nahum says here in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. There's no but here, but there should be. But the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who take refuge in Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him. That is our hope. There is no hope in believing that God desires to catch you in a technicality or hopes for you to stumble. There is no hope in believing that God desires for you to go to hell. That makes zero sense. That is not the God of Scripture. There's no hope in believing that God just wants you to do whatever you want to do because there is only death in those theologies, church. But there is hope. There is life in understanding that God is slow to anger, great in power, and abounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty. And Jesus has come and taken our place. He has taken on our punishment. A punishment that we deserve so that we might take refuge in Him. That we put off our sins on Him and say, I will walk in the light as He is in the light because in Christ Jesus there is life. And if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, what are you waiting for? God will punish the guilty. And who is guilty? I am. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. We all deserve to die, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not about technicalities. It's blatant. It is clear disregard and disobedience to His commands, and that's how we, fall ch- how we all fall short. We go on our own way all too often, and because of that, we deserve death. But if we abide in Him, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what are you waiting for if you are not in Him today? Be baptized today for the remission of your sins. Take refuge in the only one who can cover you up, who can protect you from the coming judgment and the wrath of God against the guilty. It came against Nineveh. They took refuge. But then they turned back to a life of sin. They turned away from the refuge of God. So if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you need to come back to the refuge of Christ, or if you've never entered His refuge, or if the church can assist you in any other way this morning, won't you please come forward now while we stand and sing.